This is Michael Gano with the Middle East Research Center Limited, bringing you insight to Israel, the truth about the greatness of the Jewish state and its struggle for sovereignty and security. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with the latest mental health-related news. On this show, you'll hear all about the latest mental health issues, if it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports on the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. This is the show you'll hear all about that first without the hype and distortion of other media sources. With the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, trying to better inform the general public about mental illness and also to reduce the stigma of having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome back to the show, folks. This is the Wednesday, July 16, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. And first up on tonight's show is an item that follows up on some very serious shooting incidents committed by mentally ill people, uh, especially bringing to mind the shootings that took place in the area of UC Santa Barbara in California. And that's because this is a new law passed by a city in California that has to do with allowing forced treatment of mentally ill people. Now, you may recall, if you've been listening to the show previously, that I've talked about the fact that many of these people who have committed mass shootings and are mentally ill have been in treatment, whether that was psychotherapy or taking medication. And in in many, many cases, uh, they have been on medication, stopped taking it, and then uh, became acutely ill and committed crimes. The Seattle area shooter quite notoriously said he stopped his medications so he could quote-unquote feel the hate. Now, there are certain laws in certain areas of the country where there is involuntary commitment uh, on an outpatient basis, meaning the law forces mentally ill people to comply with their treatment, not in the hospital, but in the community. That is, by law, they must go to the clinic, they must comply with treatment, must take medication, uh, even to the point of having someone from the Department of Health from their local community observe they're taking their medication. And this, of course, seems coercive. It raises all kinds of uh, human rights issues, uh, but... The impetus behind these laws is that once someone who is mentally ill becomes so irresponsible due to their illness that they commit crimes, then that justifies the state or the local municipality uh, forcing the issue and forcing them into treatment, regardless of uh, otherwise how this would look in terms of a violation of their human rights. So with that background, let's take a look at what San Francisco did just recently, the lawmakers there approved a law 
late last Tuesday, a week ago this Tuesday, allowing the forced treatment of mentally ill patients under certain conditions, obviously uh, drawing swift criticism from patient advocacy groups who say the measure tramples civil rights. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors, which passes legislation for the city in California and for the county, adopted a vote of 9 to 2, a measure known as Laura's Law. If given final approval, the law would allow court-ordered outpatient treatment for people with chronic and severe mental illness deemed a risk to themselves or others who have been jailed or hospitalized more than once in the prior three years, among other conditions. San Francisco legislator Mark Farrell, who proposed the legislation to the board, said the program would help vulnerable sick people and, quote, provide the families the support they deserve. What he's referring to there, no doubt, is the fact that families of mentally ill people who refuse treatment are helpless to get them the help they need. And uh, so for those families that they have the force of law behind their efforts to get their mentally ill relative into treatment, uh, it certainly is a relief. This law was modeled after a similar involuntary treatment law that was passed in New York all the way back in 1999. California lawmakers passed Laura's Law in 2002 after 19-year-old Laura Wilcox was shot and killed by a mentally ill patient at a Nevada County Behavioral Health Clinic where she was an intern. The state law allows family members, police officers, or mental health professionals to file petitions requesting the court-mandated treatment of a mentally ill person. Individual counties can opt out. So Laura's law has been a state law that counties and municipalities can opt out of. And Laura's law has only been fully adopted by three California counties, Nevada, Orange, and Yolo. It is expected to receive final approval from supervisors uh, this week and then be signed into law by San Francisco Mayor Edwin Lee, who has expressed support for the program. The law's implementation has been slow and sparse due to the concerns about civil rights, resources, and costs. Mental Health Association of San Francisco Executive Director Eduardo Vega said, this is the wrong direction for any community, but especially a progressive community like San Francisco. There's no real doubt that this is a process that fosters stigma around mental illness. Well, he may or may not have a point about further stigmatizing the mentally ill uh, by essentially taking away some of their civil rights and their right to choose treatment or not. But on the other hand, something has to be done to protect the public from these people. 
The law requires city health officials to offer a mental health patient voluntary treatment first before being forced into an involuntary outpatient program. It also appoints a three-person panel to each case, which includes a forensic psychiatrist, and that is a psychiatrist who specializes in the issues of mental illness and criminality, and that psychiatrist would review the case to determine if a court mandate is necessary. And also, lest anyone think that the city or county in San Francisco is just going to throw anyone they want to into this program, again, uh, there are very strict criteria. These are people who would be evaluated and confirmed to have chronic and severe mental illness that would be determined to be a risk to themselves or others, or those who have been jailed or hospitalized more than once in three prior years, uh, and there are other conditions. So, again, um, the implementation is going to be key in terms of how civil rights advocates will see how this law turns out. But the way the law worked in New York, um, I'm sure that there were some lives that were saved. Uh, the law in 1999 that was passed in New York was in response to an innocent person being killed because a mentally ill person who was repeatedly non-compliant with follow-up care after multiple hospitalizations pushed that person off a subway platform into the path of an ongoing train. <clears throat> it is very sad that Certain mentally ill people will be non-compliant with treatment, will be violent due to their mental illness, and it is furthermore sad to think that in order to protect the innocent public from incidents like this, certain civil rights have to be taken away or compromised or interfered with somehow, however you want to look at it. Uh, but again, I do see this as a valid way of saving lives and it also benefits the mentally ill if they're in treatment whether it's voluntary or involuntary then it is definitely to their benefit as well uh, their health will be looked after overall because they're in treatment and uh, so it is definite definitely to their benefit I understand to some people this would come across as being just, you know, the, the typical paternalistic uh, government entity uh, taking control over people's lives and, you know, fine civil libertarians are bound to see it that way. Uh, but there have just been too many incidents where mentally ill people are not in treatment and uh, commit crimes against the innocent public and something needs to be done about that. Now, next up on tonight's show, this item caught my eye. Regular and long-time listeners to the show will be familiar with the fact that I'm very much against the use of prescription sleeping pills and sedatives because they are severely addictive, because they have very dangerous side effects, and the fact that 
the Food and Drug Administration is applying more and more safety warnings to these drugs all the time. And just this past March, the second study in the past several years came out showing an increased risk of, of death uh, of people taking these types of medications than people who are not. Even people who are taking as few as 18 doses of one or the other of them in one year. Uh, an increased risk of confusion and memory problems in the elderly, increased risk of falls in the elderly. Uh, in short, the drugs are very dangerous and they should be, the sleeping pills especially, should be taken off the market. Well, this next item that we're going to talk about is a study that found that psychiatric drug tr- uh, causes emergency room trips to the tune of 90,000 visits a year. And let's take our first commercial break right now, and we'll talk about the study when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Come on. Follow Sniffles to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. Certification. Do you know why becoming a certified healthcare consumerism specialist is more important than ever in 2014? Adding this specialized designation to your credentials tells employers or your clients that you understand how much our industry has changed and how to navigate that change successfully. IHC University's certification program offers coursework both online and live at their biannual forum conference series, and testing is completed online. Reaffirm your position as a leader in the health and benefit management industry. Download our certification overview and learn more at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And now we're going to talk about how bad reactions to psychiatric drugs result in nearly 90,000 emergency room visits each year by adults in the United States. Anti-anxiety medicines and sleeping pills are the most common culprits, according to a new study. A drug which is used as a popular sleeping pill was among the most commonly involved sedative in all these ER visits, especially in adults aged 65 and older. Most of these emergency room visits for psychiatric drugs 
were for troublesome side effects or accidental overdoses, and almost one in five resulted in hospitalization. These results come from an analysis of 2009 to 2011 medical records from 63 hospitals that participate in a nationally representative government surveillance project, uh, surveillance of medical trends, not the kind of surveillance you're thinking of. The study was published last Wednesday in Journal of the AMA Psychiatry. Overall, the sleeping pill Ambien and some other sleeping pills was involved in almost 12% of all emergency room visits and one out of five visits for older adults. The Food and Drug Administration last year approved label changes, that is, changes in the safety uh, warnings for these pills, recommending lower doses of Ambien because of injury risks, including car crashes from morning drowsiness from people who take it to sleep at night, head injuries and falls in adults using Ambien were among reasons for emergency room visits in this new study. Sanofi, the pharmaceutical company that makes Ambien, includes a warning in its prescribing information that says the drug can cause, quote, impaired alertness and motor coordination, unquote. And it was also quoted as saying that doctors should caution patients against driving and other activities requiring complete mental alertness the morning after use. So you see, they point to the fact that they have the proper verbiage in your warning label, which they feel uh, releases them of any obligation to warn patients and doctors about the dangers of their drug and said, well, it's up to doctors and patients to be aware uh, this information is in our warning. Uh, now, doctors Lee Hampton and Daniel Budnitz of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Healthcare Quality Promotion Division led the study. They cited previously published national data showing that emergency room visits for bad reactions to Ambien increased 220% from 2005 to 2010, so just five years. The FDA's recent efforts to modify recommended dosing regimens hold promise for reducing Ambien-related problems, according to the authors of the study, but they also said that doctors can help by recommending that patients use other insomnia treatments first, including better sleep habits and behavior therapy. Now, I would argue that the new prescribing guidelines are only going to be helpful if doctors and patients follow them. Uh, in most cases, patients are going to take the same amount of medicine they think is going to be necessary to help them sleep at night and are not likely to follow recommendations to take less if it's not effective. Bad reactions to other psychiatric medicines in this study included mental disturbances, heart-related symptoms, and intestinal problems. 
The study notes that nearly 27 million United States adults used prescription drugs to treat mental illness in 2011, so only a fraction of them had bad reactions resulting in emergency room treatment. Still, the authors say doctors need to weigh the benefits and risks before prescribing psychiatric medicines. My take on this is that this is just more evidence that Ambien is a dangerous drug with serious side effects and should be taken off the market. Next up on Psychiatry Today. A strange item in some ways, but in other ways not at all surprising. The brains of sex addicts may be wired like those of drug addicts, according to a new study. In people with sex addiction, pornography affects the brain in ways that are similar to that seen in drug addicts as they consume drugs, according to a new study. On the surface, this doesn't seem surprising at all. As a matter of fact, as far as I'm concerned, it would have been surprising if the study had found otherwise. Now, the study author was quoted as saying, there are clear differences in brain activity between patients who have compulsive sexual behavior and healthy volunteers. These differences mirror those of drug addicts. Research involved 19 men with sex addiction and a control group of 19 men without the disorder, which is also known as compulsive sexual behavior. The men with the sex addiction had started watching pornography and more of it at an earlier age than those in the control group. The patients in the trial were all people who had substantial difficulties controlling their sexual behavior, and this was having significant consequences for them, affecting their lives and relationships. This is what distinguishes someone who has a sexual addiction versus someone who simply likes to watch pornography now and again. In many ways, these patients show similarities in their behavior to patients with drug addictions and researchers wanted to see if these similarities were reflected in brain activity as well as behavior. The study participants' brain activity was monitored while they watched either pornographic videos or sports videos. While watching the pornographic videos, the men with sex addiction showed much greater activity in three areas of the brain compared with men in the control group. These three areas of the brain, the ventral striatum, dorsal anterior cingulate, and amygdala, are involved in processing reward and motivation and also become highly activated in drug addicts in response to drugs. The study was published on July the 11th in the journal PLOS One. While these findings are interesting, it's important to note, however, that they could not be used to diagnose the condition, nor does research necessarily provide evidence that these individuals are addicted to pornography or that pornography is inherently addictive. 
Much more research is, is required to understand this relationship between compulsive sexual behavior and drug addiction. According to the researchers, prior studies have suggested that sex addiction, an obsession with sexual thoughts, feelings, or behavior that they are unable to control, affects as many as 1 in 25 adults. But the idea that there is even such a thing as sexual addiction that can be considered a mental disorder is controversial. I have to say I agree that there are definitely commonalities between sexual addiction and drug addiction. It is a behavior that some people have a compulsion to indulge in, regardless of knowledge that it is causing negative consequences for their life and also that they continue to indulge in the behavior despite the negative consequences and uh, that they are unable to stop despite the awareness of said negative consequences and despite others in their life pointing out to them that it is a problem that they need to address. So I definitely think that uh, there are people uh, for whom it goes beyond just uh, something they are interested in quite a bit uh, for a small subset of people, this is definitely something they are not capable of stopping without treatment. Next up on Psychiatry Today, another example of the interface between emotion and physical health. Hostile people are more likely to suffer a stroke. You may or may not be familiar with past research from, um, in fact, decades ago now, demonstrating that hostility puts people at risk for a heart attack. So now, here's a study that came out last Thursday showing that feeling cynical and hostile toward others may double the risk of having a stroke in middle-aged and older adults. The research was in a journal called Stroke, a journal of the American Heart Association, and it also found that depression and high stress increased stroke risk. More than 6,700 adults between the ages of 45 to 84 answered questionnaires about their state of mind and behavior for the study. The surveys assessed chronic stress, depressive symptoms, anger and hostility over two years Low scores indicated a lesser frequency of these findings. Subjects reported no heart disease at the beginning of the study. They were then followed for between 8 and 11 years, during which time 147 of them had strokes and 48 of them had transient ischemic attacks, or TIAs, which is sometimes called a mini-stroke because it's a temporary blockage of blood flow to the brain that eventually resolves itself. Well, what we're going to do, I think, we'll pause here and take our next commercial break. And when we come back from that, we'll talk about the researchers' findings and we'll have more mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back after this break. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? 
All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Have you heard of quantitative fluid analysis? Commonly called QFA, this test assesses your body at a cellular level and gives insight into your illness. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center offers the QFA, an FDA-approved test that can often provide early diagnosis of conditions before they can be detected with other tests. Dr. Elena George believes in an integrative approach to medicine. She believes in treating the problem and not the symptom. Following a review of your results, Dr. George will suggest treatment approaches such as nutritional counseling and or the use of pharmaceutical-grade enzymes and nutritional supplements. Surgery and prescription medication will be recommended only when necessary. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404-591-9100 to make an appointment and mention that you heard this ad on Radio Sandy Springs and get 10% off of QFA testing. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with you and all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about a study showing that hostile people are at greater risk of suffering a stroke. So let's talk about what the researchers found, which is that those with the highest hostility scores, now how do they measure that? Well, they were assessing a person's cynical expectations of other people's motives. They were more than twice as likely to have a stroke or a TIA compared to those with the lowest such scores. Similarly, high scores on depressive symptoms meant an 86% higher risk of stroke, and the chronically stressed faced a 59% higher risk of stroke or of a TIA. Perhaps surprisingly, anger was not associated with any risk of increased stroke. Anger is opposed to hostility. The study included a broad mix of races, which is not usually typical for medical research, and therefore the findings uh, seem more valid. The associations between psychology and stroke remained even after researchers accounted for variables such as age, race, gender, health behaviors, and other known risk factors for stroke. There's such a focus on traditional risk factors, cholesterol levels, blood pressure, smoking, and so forth. And those are all extremely important. But studies like this one show that psychological characteristics are equally important. Given the aging population, it is important to consider these other factors that might play a role in disease risk. And I have to say, you can't argue with that claim uh, on the part of the study authors, but it makes one think, what does that mean for 
preventative health care. Should a primary care doctor be asking things about, well, do you smoke? Let's check your blood pressure. Let's check your blood sugar. Uh, let's check your cholesterol levels. And let's check your personality, too. Probably not, I'm guessing. But in any case, uh, it certainly does demonstrate yet again that there are strong connections uh, between one's mood and emotional state and one's psychological state in total and one's physical health. You cannot separate the two. That's why I think the distinctions mental and physical health are meaningless. Uh, it's all physical health when you get right down to it. Now, this next item on psychiatry today is yet another study showing evidence that moderate drinking may benefit the heart. Now, all the studies about the benefits of use of alcohol are a pet peeve of mine because researchers who tout the benefits of alcohol rarely take a balanced enough approach to discuss how alcohol can be detrimental to a lot of people, even in moderate amounts, and fail to point out that too many people happily take the findings of studies like this and overindulge, despite the fact that the studies talk about moderate alcohol use. And in fact, moderate alcohol use, folks, just to remind you, that means up to one drink a day for a woman, up to two for a man. And the reason for the difference is not because the people who come up with these guidelines are sexist, but because women have a different ratio of fat to water in their body than men, and also they have lower levels of an enzyme in the stomach that is the body's first means of metabolizing alcohol compared to men. But in any case, these uh, studies recommending or, or showing the health benefits of moderate alcohol use, I think, can be very damaging when uh, people who are not capable of properly filtering this information uh, take them as an invitation to tipple some more. So let's take a look at this latest study of this type. Two large studies, actually, were published in June one covering 52 countries around the world and the other from Scandinavia, and they link low to moderate alcohol consumption to reduced risk of heart attack or a life-threatening flaw in the main artery from the heart. Uh, now, I think it's important to point out here that alcohol abuse is well known to be toxic to the heart, and to illustrate the point, there is a well-known entity such as alcoholic cardiomyopathy, which is a disease of the heart muscle caused by excessive alcohol use. The protective effects of moderate drinking were not universal across Asia, and it's not clear whether all types of alcohol offer the same benefits. Both of these studies urge further exploration of that and other questions. But both also find increased risk of harm when drinking goes from moderate to heavy. Researchers said, quote, there is now solid evidence 
that alcohol, when consumed on a regular basis and at low volumes, up to one drink for women and two drinks for men daily, confers protection against cardiovascular disease, whereas regular amounts of more than four to five drinks daily and heavy episodic drinking or binge drinking have the opposite effects. And the authors are neurologists at the Innsbruck Medical University in Austria, and they wrote that in a journal, an editorial rather, in the journal Circulation, one of the new studies looked at drinking and risk of experiencing abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is a ballooning of the main blood vessel from the heart that delivers blood to the trunk and lower body. That condition kills about 11,000 Americans each year and contributes to the death of 17,000 more. Men, especially those over age 60, are most likely to have abdominal aortic aneurysms. Smoking and high blood pressure can increase the risk, and if the aneurysm ruptures, it can be life-threatening. Heart attack, which affects about 1.5 million people in the United States each year, is subject to many of the same risk factors and also can be life-threatening. For the heart attack study, researchers used data from 52 countries to compare 12,000 cases of first heart attacks with 15,500 similar people who did not have a heart attack. Trained staff administered alcohol use questionnaires to heart attack victims and the comparison group. Compared to not drinking at all, current alcohol use was linked to a 13% lower risk of heart attack on average in almost all regions, with the exception of South Asian countries, including India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. In other regions, the protective association went away when alcohol consumption increased beyond four drinks per week. Let me say that again. The protective association went away when alcohol consumption increased beyond four drinks per week. That is not very much alcohol, folks. There are many people who have that weekly allotment in one night. Having six or more drinks in the past 24 hours was associated with a 40% increased risk of heart attack, especially for people over age 65. The lead author of the Population Institute at McMaster University and Hamilton Health Sciences in Canada, Dr. Daryl Leong, said, there have been several postulated mechanisms by which low levels of alcohol use could protect against heart attack and by which heavy alcohol use could increase the risk of heart attack. It could also be true that people who drink a low to moderate amount of alcohol do other things differently that might affect their risk of these problems, he said. These findings suggest caution before recommending low to moderate alcohol use, given that alcohol may not be protective for all people and is also implicated as a cause of some cancers and injury. 
He said, there is little doubt that heavy drinking should be avoided. We do not know at an individual level if there is a safe threshold of alcohol use. That will need further study. Now, for the abdominal aortic aneurysm study, researchers combined two Swedish data sets with a total of 70,000 men and women over age 45 who were followed from 1998 to 2011. Their alcohol consumption was reported in food frequency questionnaires, and the incidence of abdominal aortic aneurysm was cross-referenced with Swedish health registries. Over the 14-year period, 1,020 men and 194 women were diagnosed with abdominal aortic aneurysm. Drinking four to six glasses of alcohol per week was associated with a 20% lower risk of abdominal aortic aneurysm for men and a 44% lower risk for women compared to drinking less than one or two glasses per week. The risk kept decreasing up to the point of consuming 10 glasses per week for men and five for women. Among specific alcohols, beer and wine in particular were associated with lower risk. However, for people who did not have cardiovascular diseases, moderate drinking was not tied to any change in abdominal aortic aneurysm risk. Generally speaking, the development of abdominal aortic aneurysm and heart attack is a slow process that is thought to begin with an inflammatory damage of blood vessel walls. This damage can, for example, be caused by infections, cigarette smoke, high blood pressure, or other circulating components in your blood, like fatty acids or sugar. The alcoholic component itself, ethanol, has previously been found to alter levels of fatty acids in the blood, while antioxidants found in fermented beverages like wine and beer have been connected to other favorable effects, for example, decreased inflammation in blood vessel walls. Right, well, we'll finish up our thoughts about this study, and we'll have more mental health-related news when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan. Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed, and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, you can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team membership are you an ihc member access to the institute for healthcare consumerism's breaking news 
industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, Annual Publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your host for the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about the latest in a long series of studies showing that moderate drinking of alcohol can have a beneficial effect on cardiovascular health. Now, the findings suggest caution, and again, because although moderate alcohol use has been associated with many cardiovascular diseases, this is the first time a study has specifically identified an association with abdominal aortic aneurysm, and it may be that this association is due to a third factor or behavior that the researchers didn't account for, and the lead author of that study said I would not advise anyone to start to drink alcohol if they have not been drinking before based on these findings. However, a low to moderate consumption does not seem to be harmful for most individuals, so I would neither discourage those who like to take a glass of wine to dinner. Uh, The American Heart Association recommends no more than two glasses of alcohol for men and no more than one daily glass for women. Now, this set of these two studies, uh, this is the first time that researchers have been so careful to point out that their studies showed benefits of alcohol use only up to a point, and that above a certain threshold, it went from benefit to harm. Uh, And that's something that isn't often talked about when you hear of these reports of this type of research and the benefits of drinking. Uh, And they're also careful to point out that they don't recommend someone start drinking just based on the results of this research. And again, as you just heard, they're careful to remind people of the American Heart Association's appropriate limits. Um, The bottom line is, in moderation, alcohol is perfectly acceptable uh, and maybe beneficial up to a point, but there is that line where above a certain threshold, it is detrimental to physical health. And we know very well of the mental health detriments of too much alcohol is a depressant, uh, a central nervous system depressant. 
So for those people who suffer from depression or are prone to depression, even moderate amounts, even infrequently, may be like pouring gasoline on fire for those folks. And for people who are taking medication, you also have to consider the risks of adverse interactions with the medication. When someone is on medication for a psychiatric type medication and they're drinking alcohol, you're talking about two central nervous system compounds acting on the brain, interacting within the brain, and this can lead to some very severe complications and adverse effects um, in the brain. It can lead to strokes and seizures. It can also affect the heart rhythm. So there definitely can be very serious health consequences if alcohol is not used uh, judiciously. All right, well, don't want you to think that this was any kind of a temperance speech, folks. Uh, quite the contrary, uh, as long as people can use it moderately and appropriately, nothing wrong with it, but it is not appropriate for everybody, especially those with serious mental illness. They should avoid alcohol altogether since it aggravates mood problems and interacts badly with the medication. Well, let's talk now about another legal but addictive drug, nicotine. And smoking cessation, uh, research into how to make it easier for people to quit smoking. Uh, the latest study shows that smoking cessation is more effective when people combine different medical treatments, uh, when they combine nicotine patches and the medication known as Chantix. People trying to quit smoking may be more likely to succeed if they combine Chantix with the nicotine patch. The study comes from South Africa. According to the study's authors, the findings challenge previous research that found no added benefit from combining the smoking cessation drug Chantix with nicotine patches. These new results may encourage some doctors to treat patients who failed with other methods to quit smoking with the combination pill and patch approach. For the new study, researchers recruited 446 people from seven healthcare centers around South Africa from April 2011 to October 2012. Researchers randomly assigned the participants to receive real or fake nicotine patches, which they would start wearing two weeks before a chosen quit date. One week before that date, all participants were put on Chantix, which they continued to take for about three months. By measuring the amount of carbon monoxide in participants' breath to confirm abstinence from tobacco, the researchers found that about 55% of those using the pill and real nicotine patch were smoke-free after 12 weeks, compared to about 41% of people using the pill and fake patch. Now that doesn't sound like a big difference, maybe, uh, but you know, 55 versus 41%, so that's 14% more people quit with the combined approach than just the pill and the fake patch. 
Um, you know, I think that is significant when you look at the fact that a trial of a successful smoking cessation treatment really only helps about a little more than a third of people quit. Now, after a longer period of time, after 24 weeks, okay, almost six months, 49%, almost half of the people in the pill and real patch group were smoke-free compared to 33% using the pill and the fake patch. So that's a 16% difference. Again, it's quite significant. Those using the pill and real patch were also more likely to be smoke-free at six months. Now, these results were published in Journal of the AMA. The occurrence of side effects was equal between the two groups, but skin reactions were about twice as common among the people using the real nicotine patch. Chantix attaches to the same brain receptors that are activated by nicotine, but the drug blocks nicotine from getting to those receptors while also partially activating them. The combined treatments saturate more nicotine receptors in the brain and lessen cravings compared to using the pill or the patch alone. The beauty of Chantix is that it blocks you from going into nicotine withdrawal, and it also makes smoking less rewarding or less reinforcing. So you gradually cut down and stop smoking without going into withdrawal. This study hopefully would begin to change the way the, uh, these difficult patients who have trouble quitting smoking are approached. And this would include people who tried other treatments, such as Chantix alone, or a combination of short-acting nicotine replacement products like the nasal sprays or the lozenges, compared with long-acting nicotine replacement like patches, the people who tried all these things and yet couldn't kick their smoking habit. Now, Chantix is well known to cause side effects. The drug has a so-called black box warning in its label, and the manufacturer says that some people taking the medication have experienced changes in behavior, including hostility, agitation, moodiness, and suicidal thoughts and actions. Now, in my experience, I have not seen much in the way of moodiness or depression. Unfortunately, no one that I prescribed it to became suicidal. But I have seen some people get hostile and angry and irritable. The more common side effects that I have seen quite a bit with is Chantix is very notorious for causing nausea and also for causing nightmares. Surprisingly, though, people who are really desperate and motivated to quit smoking will put up with quite a bit to get the job done. And quitting smoking is the single most important thing any smoker can do for their health if they want to improve their quality of life. Well, the bottom line is I think this study is encouraging for those people who want to quit smoking and they've tried in the past uh, and have been unsuccessful uh, to combine Chantix with nicotine patches seems like uh, a, an approach that could lead to significantly more success. 
And my suggestion is that in using the patches, whether alone or in combination with Chantix, that you start with a high enough dose on the patch to where you will not still feel like you need to smoke. The patches generally come in three strains. The 21 milligram patch would be for someone who has quite a significant smoking habit, a moderate smoker, that's the 14 milligram patch, and a very light smoker, that's the 7 milligram patch. Usually the 14 and the 7 are there to help someone on the 21 taper off the patches. But the other thing that I suggest is that you don't taper off the higher patches too soon. Stay on the higher patches, or the 21 or the 14, as long as you need to, and don't try to reduce the dose of the patch until you're comfortable and you're confident that you won't suffer a relapse of smoking. And even if this means you're exceeding the guidelines uh, in the directions that come with the patches, I think it's better to take your sweet time getting off the patch than it is to go back to smoking cigarettes. Because even though you're still getting the nicotine from the patch, you're not inhaling cigarette smoke, so you're not getting these tars and carcinogens. The other thing about Chantix is that I think people take the wrong approach when they use Chantix in that they think, well, I have to just quit um, on a certain day. If you can, that's great. But the beauty of Chantix is it allows you to, to taper off gradually and stop uh, much easier than if you tried to do it without any help. And I also think that uh, instead of putting that much pressure on yourself for a given day, you know, quit when it feels comfortable. And this is the most important thing. Stay on the Chantix for several months after you quit to prevent relapse. When people stop Chantix after they quit, they set themselves up for a relapse. Well, time to wrap up tonight's show quickly. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again next week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.